well, he actually he didn't tell me what he thought. He's like, but your white blood cells are extremely elevated. I said, how elevated? He's like 45,000. And I know enough about the body to realize what that meant as far as cancer. I didn't know exactly the type of leukemia. But so, but it's Friday. And what I do on Saturday, I, I go train, you know I mean? Because that's, that's what I do. And I'll tell you, the only thing that changed between the, the Friday and the Saturday of going to train was the knowledge that I was sick. And that bicycle ride was like I was carrying a freaking 45 pound plate on my shoulders. It was so incredibly hard. And it just shows you the, the, the mental aspect of, you know, the weight that we carry when we have that stress on us, whether it be bad news of health or bad news of financial or, you know, or whatever. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is master Czech practitioner and triathlete, Andrew Johnston. Author of Holistic Strength Training for Triathlon, Andrew is a former professional cyclist and triathlete. He is the first leukemia survivor to qualify for and finish the Hawaii Ironman World Championships, the first leukemia survivor to win an iron distance triathlon, and twice voted one of the top trainers in America by Men's Health Magazine. Andrew is a master check practitioner with a busy practice in Atlanta. Hello and welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I am super excited to share an amazing guest today, Andrew Johnston. Andrew's been a longtime friend of mine. He was a student of the Czech Institute for many years. He's a level four Czech practitioner and just an all around amazing human being. Andrew has a lot of amazing athletic accomplishments, and he's conquered health challenges of significance, which he will share. And he has written some excellent books, one titled Spot on Nutrition, A Holistic Strategy for Optimal Health and Performance, Volume 1, and Holistic Strength Training for Triathlon. He's also got a DVD documentary of his often very challenging and scary life as an elite athlete titled Living is Winning. Andrew, it's such a blessing to have you on Living 4D with me. I'm excited to dive into your story and share what we're all capable of overcoming through love, commitment, and the support of family and those that love us. Most definitely. I'm psyched to be here, man. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it already. Well, it's uh, always great to spend some time with you. I I, uh, whenever I get a chance to be with you, I always cherish it. To me, you're a truly a spiritual warrior. I wonder if you could start us off by giving us an overview of your athletic accomplishments. Huh. Uh, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. But uh, <laughs> Well, you can tell a story. <laughs> well, I, I think it starts really with my granddad, who was a professional soccer player in Scotland. He, was, he played for the Rangers, and I think that's where I inherited a lot of my athletic ability, my dad maybe it skipped a generation or maybe he just didn't have uh the the timing right because you know he's small like me i'm five four and uh when you go to montgomery alabama the 1940s or whatever it was when they they came over from scotland there's not a lot of sports for uh, uh you know a small kid who only knows how to play soccer so football and other things like that just weren't going to happen so it skipped his generation he was the academic if you will but my granddad uh, was an amazing athlete, and even at the age of 72, I think he was the second base best handball player in the nation. Wow. Beat by, yeah, he was beat by a guy uh, in the finals who was 51 because his age bracket started at 15 and above. So he was just a stud. Um, and uh, I, I played soccer all my life until I got to college. And then 
quickly realized that the writing on the wall was going to be quick as far as my lifetime and, and that sport was concerned. I just wasn't as, as good as all the other Europeans that were coming over to soccer, uh, to America to play and uh, found the bicycle. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I mean, the, the rest is history. Honestly, the, the first first ride I had on the bicycle was with a guy who smoked and played guitar and he was just a friend of mine but he kicked my ass. I mean, and I don't know if that's the ass kicking. That was what motivated me, but I was like, man, I, I got to get better at this. And, uh, started diving into the, the cycling as much as I could started training, getting my ass kicked. Every time I went out on some of these group rides, made it a hundred yards farther each, each weekend. And, uh, that summer went away to train, uh, also work to make some money for college, et cetera. And then I came back the next year and started having results. And what my sophomore year after uh, college, the Olympic, tra Olympic tra tra Training Center invited me to come out there and be a resident athlete. And so I did that for a while and um, started getting some good results, turned pro uh, my senior year in college and then went to Europe right after getting married to my, my uh, wife and uh, you know, rode bikes for several years before that ended somewhat prematurely, which maybe we'll get into as well. So, uh, when you were riding in Europe as a professional, where what kind of races were you doing? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the Tour de France type stuff, but not the Tour de France because uh, you have to be at a certain level, and I just wasn't at that level. I don't know that I ever was going to be, and I just wasn't. I wasn't ready to make certain sacrifices, uh, and if you know what I mean, that just basically the the drug ones. Uh, yeah, you know it's it's sad to say, but that's just the truth of the matter, and it just it's part of the sport as far as I'm concerned. It's like, you know, natural bodybuilding versus what, what they might just call bodybuilding. I don't know. It's drugs are rampant, and uh, I had a fear of needles, which helped me avoid that. But I also had a fear of my wife, which helped me avoid that as well. She, <laughs> that's probably the bigger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, she was adamant about uh, not taking anything, and uh, that was that was. It's easier to, to say no to to that when she's on your side. Yeah. Well, but you you know you you've talked about your your uh, cycling, your professional cycling. But what about your Ironman career? Oh well, yeah. I guess I had a second athletic career after the cycling ended. So the cycling ended because of a third concussion. Um, we had come back from Europe in what ninety eight, and we did that for my wife to get her master's degree. She's got a master's in social work, and um, we did that at the University of Georgia. And so I was at home, and I was actually going to be racing for a team called Go Martin, and we were going to go out and do Redlands, which is out in California, out in your neck of the woods. Uh, but ironically enough, my father-in-law was putting up a treehouse, uh, not a treehouse, a birdhouse, I should say, in a tree. Fell off a ladder, hit his head on a metal water meter, and uh, was in a coma for 11 days. Wow. Yeah. So at that point, uh, I felt like I needed to stay with family and, and kind of put my cycling stuff on hold. And so I was just racing in the Southeast during that time. And so I was doing this race called the Columbia Crit for Kids. This was literally probably two or three weeks after my father-in-law was injured. Um, and I was in the winning breakaway. We had already lapped the field. And then somebody fell off in front of me and I hit him, just landed on my head perfectly, went into convulsions. I don't remember any of this. This is what I'm told. They, they stopped the race, which I don't know what you know about professional cycling racing, but they never stopped the race. Um, so they stopped the race. Eventually, I guess, scraped me off the floor, uh, put me in an um, ambulance and took me to the hospital. My wife gets a call that, hey, um, you know, we have your husband over here. You need to come get him. So she drove all night, picked me up in the hospital. My first memory of anything is actually her walking into the hospital room 
and just being so in love with what was coming in to 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 claim me you know <laughs> yeah uh and then uh so I, that was my third concussion i was slurring my words i have really no memory of about two weeks there my personality was completely different for like six months uh, uh i had to learn how to ride the bike all over again my equilibrium was completely lost and um uh, you know after seeing neurologists and the demands of doctors and family they said you have to put down the bike so I put down the bike and unfortunately at that point kind of lost my identity right then. It was, it's, it's kind of brutal at that point to be 26 years old and uh, having no idea who the hell you are at that point. Uh, yes, indeed. But uh, I, I eventually got into to triathlon because I always said, even as a professional cyclist, one of these days I'm going to do Ironman. Had no idea what that entailed, but after sitting on my ass for like, what, a couple of years, I thought it's now time to, to, get fit again and start doing something. So it was either bodybuilding or mountain biking or triathlon and bodybuilding. I was going to be too short for, you know, so I didn't want to look like a big round weeble wobble. Uh, and, um, with mountain biking, I tried to go to this first race, but I couldn't find it. And I got so pissed off. I called up a guy that I was coaching and said, Hey, tell me what, tell me where that triathlon is going to be. The uh, next day he told me where it was and I showed up and I uh, got fourth overall. And I was like, all right, well, that's, that's the sport that I'm going to do now. That's pretty cool. So how many Ironmans have you done now? Uh, I think seven. I think that's right. I'd have to count them up, but about seven, maybe eight. That's a lot, man. That's a lot of hard work. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a long day, um, but it's – look, I've never been fast, really. Um, there are people that are faster, let's put it that way, but I think I can suffer with the best of them. And uh, <laughs> Ironman's about suffering, you know, and uh, it's it's not – who's going the fastest so much as who's slowing down the, the least. And, and I did that pretty well. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, your upbringing is very interesting. I'd, I'd love it if you can give us an overview of your developmental history and where your challenges were and how you ultimately created freedom within your body, your mind, and your life. Wow. Um, well, I'm a latchkey kid. You know, I came from a broken home. My parents were divorced since before I was two. When I, and I have literally no memory of living with my dad. Um, so I, I think that probably played a huge role in who I was, uh, you know, and, uh, maybe, maybe that personal development that starts early and having to come home to an empty house, which might be scary. And in fact, you know, so my, my house had a, a basement and it was one of those basements that was complete like dirt and, you know, not, not finished at all. And it was dark and, and just scary as hell. And I, I, I think I remember having like, you know, uh, times where I was like, all right, I'm not going to turn the light on until I, you know, I go down there and I'm not going to turn it off until I get up to the top. So I was, I was always testing myself to make sure that, I don't know, I guess I was my own, not even man at that point, because I was a boy, but my own boy, like, uh, I'm not going to let fear win. And I guess I was always fighting that because if you're alone a lot, you're going to be afraid a lot, uh, especially as a, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old kid coming home, uh, after school. Yeah. Um, so, and, and my wife will joke about that. A lot of the shit that I've accomplished, if, if you look at it as a uh, big or monumental, it's because I've always been trying to prove my self-worth to my, my dad. I don't know that's necessarily true, but, uh, there's probably a ring of truth to that. I, all I know is, um, I, I definitely enjoy challenges and, uh, there was a the challenge of being, uh, a latchkey kid, but then there's the challenge of being the smallest person on the field. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm five, four now. And when I was in 
elementary school, I can remember kids having to pick me up and lift me up to get water from the water fountain because I was too short to get water from the water fountain. So, um, and, in, and in fact, um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with growth hormone, right? Yes, of course. Okay. Well, I was actually one of the guinea pigs for growth hormone back uh, in like the 80s. I was in, I think I was in third grade and my parents decided to go ahead and put me in a, I guess, a clinical trial, this growth hormone, which back then was from human cadavers. It wasn't synthetic. And uh, for a week I was getting injections, you know, in my ass and in the ports in my veins and stuff like that. And I think that's where I developed my fear of needles. Wow. Uh, it was, I remember freaking out one time and they had to strap me down in like one of those, uh, heck, I don't even know what you call it, like a straight jacket almost. And I remember saying, just, okay, let me out, let me out. I, I won't scream. I won't yell. I won't, you know, fight. Just please let me out. So I think that's where my fear of needles came from. Um, and I only did it for a week because I told my mom, if you don't let me, you know, come off of this, I'm, I'm running away because I, I, I just couldn't handle it. Um, and it was supposed to be a, I think three shots a week until I was 18. And I was what, eight at the time. Wow. That's a long haul. Yeah. And I honestly, it's a good thing ultimately because, because they were taking it from human cadavers, there's a um, disease, I forget what it's called, something like Crucifield-Jacob disease or something like that. Yes. Uh-huh. It's like uh, mad cow disease, but in humans. And it's because they had a um, a dose that they took from a guy who was infected by this stuff. And obviously it was killing some people. And so up until I was about 18, my mom would get these occasional once every year, once every six months, uh, a letter from the doctor saying, hey, is he showing any signs of neurological this or neurological that? Um I guess the answer is debatable whether or not she, there was anything, but uh, luckily I think I avoided that. Yeah, that's interesting. What, I've never heard the term latchkey kid. What does that mean? So I was coming home to a house that was locked, but I had a key and usually I either took it, took it with me or it was hidden. I can't remember, but you're coming home and there's no parents. Uh, I see. Um, and that's not even legal these days. Like, I mean, my wife's a social worker and uh, if a kid is home, the kid has to have a parent uh, uh, under a certain age and above a certain age. It's only for a certain amount of hours that that kid can be alone. So um, there's a lot of trouble a kid can get into, you know, uh, <laughs> when he's uh, 12, 13 years old and coming home to an empty house. Absolutely. It, yeah, can, it yeah. can result in houses burning down. Exactly. Well, you learn the stove is hot that way, though. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about your religious upbringing and, and the kind of concepts that were implanted in you from that perspective. Uh, um, well, my, my grandparents on my mom's side were Southern Baptists. If that, if that says anything to you, uh, yeah. my, my grandparents on my, uh, dad's side were Presbyterian. So I think it was a little bit lower key, but, uh, my grandparents, uh, in South Carolina, the Baptists, I mean, you couldn't say darn around them, uh, which, which is really funny. So you couldn't say shit. And yet he used to say my granddad, oh, Shaw. And uh, you couldn't say Jesus Christ, but I remember my granddad saying Jiminy Cricket uh, and, and things like that. So they, they were there were things that weren't uh, aligned in what was being taught to me and yet what was being being uh, presented. So they were great people. I loved them. Um, it's just I, I think I found at early age that something just wasn't ringing quite true. Um, and then I remember going to a church in about seventh grade and, and talking to the preacher one time. And I said to the preacher, hey, do you have to? go to church to believe in God. And he said, no. And I said, see ya, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, and, and literally other than, you know, uh, weddings and funerals and maybe one or two times with my wife during, um, Christmas or Easter just to, to, cause she really wanted me to. And I love my wife. Uh, I, I haven't set foot in a church since. I mean, it's, 
it's just not where I find I'm able to commune with with higher spirit. I find I can do that other places, uh, other means. Well, if God is God, then the universe is the church. Exactly. Uh, and I completely believe that. And I think that's one of the things that helped me so much with, uh, sport. It's when you're, when you're killing yourself to make it to the finish line in front of a charging Peloton of 200 people or whatever it is, you, you come very close to, to God. Let's put it that way. Um, and it's, it was a way to, to find that, that otherworldliness uh without having to being a preacher with a bunch of being a preacher being a uh, church with a bunch of other people who you know i don't know were looking at you strange because you were dressed differently yeah exactly now you and i uh i think is it am i the one that introduced you to the use of plant medicines yeah without a doubt you're my um first time i ever did anything like that and it was was an awesome experience was when I came out, actually, this was before level four because level four had been canceled. There weren't enough qualified candidates and you were gracious enough to say, Hey dude, come on out. Let's, let's do some one-on-one work together. And, um, yeah, you, you introduced me to that. And I think we did a, a sound healing and you were very interested in helping me with my leukemia and kind of taking me to that next level of health and, and wellness. What, what sort of experiences did that bring up in you? And what were the effects of that experience? You know, Paul, I, I think that's the first time that I not just academically, but genuinely understood the oneness of the universe, if you will. Um, I still have this vivid memory of you and me at your house, uh, lying down on the grass and looking up at the beautiful sky during the day and hearing the wind, the birds. uh feeling the earth, I mean, and the, the sensation of us just almost like traveling through the universe at however many millions of miles an hour, uh, it was, and, and you could just tell it was all connected. And I don't know, it sounds cheesy, but it, it, I think you almost have to have that experience to to realize the truth of it. But it's it's so incredibly true that I wish more people could experience it. I think one of the big challenges is, you know, in the structure stages of consciousness, using Gebser's model, we're really heavily in the mental stage. And as you know, that largely deals with intellect and people have gotten so trapped in ideas and constantly trying to, you know, please teachers or please bosses or get grades or memorize things to pass tests or memorize the things they got to memorize to do at work, what have you. And so paradoxically, people are so kind of caught in, in what the Buddhists call the I know mind, where they actually think they know what's going on, but they've lost connection with nature and they've lost connection with the depth of connection, even in their relationships. When you look at the fact that the average marriage today only lasts 2.5 years and the average person gets married three times in their lifetime, it's as though we've kind of gotten so trapped in ideas that we avoid a lot of the experiences that ultimately produce meaning. And the plant medicines break the ego structure down. They they basically make the ego very porous to the flow of both the unconscious and, in my opinion, the superconscious. So they allow us to connect the dots 
in ways that we can't really connect them when our conscious ego mind is really running the show, which is, as you know, largely based on the ideas that were programmed into us. So all of a sudden, with the help of the right plant medicines, I feel we're actually able to experience reality as it as it really is without our program story getting in the way. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Hi, this is Paul Check, and I am super excited to share an amazing line of super nutritional products that I found called Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. If you go to Organifi.com and check out their product line, they have a wide variety of excellent products. And unlike any food-based product company that's ever showed interest in sponsoring the Czech Institute or any of my courses or products or videos or any of the projects I've done that stated they were organic, when I asked them for their organic certification, I never got them. I have been through this before. When I contacted Organifi and asked to see their documentation that they were legitimately using organic source materials, very quickly I got an email with 14 organic certifications showing that their source materials are certified organic. Then I put the products to the test with my family and on my own body, and I must say I was very impressed. They have a wide variety. They have green juice, red juice. They have a product called Gold that aids with sleep, muscle aches and pains, and joint stiffness. It helps bolster your immunity. It's awesome. One of my favorites is called Pure, and it's got lion's mane. It's Bobab infused, it's great for gut health, brain performance. Lion's mane is excellent for stimulating neurogenesis. I love to give it to my son, Mana. Another one that's fantastic is Immunity, which is an organic superfood product, and it supports your immune system. It tastes fantastic. I like to put these right in some water and mix them in and drink them or put them into tea. They have a variety of great stuff like green juices, red juice. They have Organifi Gold. It aids with restless sleep, muscle aches and pains, stiff joints, bolsters your immunity. You'll wake up feeling rejuvenated if you have that in the evening. They have awesome protein powders. Angie's about to give birth to our second child and she's been really enjoying their protein powder. Their products are safe for pregnant mothers. I'm a very picky guy and I'm hard to impress when it comes to food products, but these guys really got me. I love the products. If you are ready to try some amazing products that can really make your life more efficient, if you don't have time to do a lot of cooking, you're a busy executive or you're a mother and you've got lots going on and you need something to give your kids now and then that's legitimately nutritious, good for them and organic, which means clean and high in nutrients, you can't go wrong with Organifi. Go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com, and when you're checking out, put in check 20s, lowercase c, lowercase h, lowercase e, lowercase k, 20, and you will get a 20% off at checkout. And you will be amazed, just like I was. Can't wait to hear your feedback. Check them out. 
O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. When you're checking out, use the code C-H-E-K-20 for a 20% discount and prepare to be nourished, enlivened, and amazed. I'd love to hear your feedback. I think it's something that, like you said, starts starts early. And I think it's probably a little bit worse for guys than it is for women because for whatever reason, you know, I mean, at least in my case, you, you got to be a, a hard ass, you know? I mean, um, and so you start learning fairly early on, maybe not to show emotion, maybe not to feel certain things. Uh, and I think that disconnects you more and more from the present of what's there. And and when I say the present, I'm talking about, you know, in terms of time, but I'm also talking about the, the gift as well, using it both, both meanings. And I think that's the, one of the biggest losses that at least we have as men, and really I'm sure women do it as well, but have, and if we could learn to just open ourselves up, like you just said, and, and become more porous, I think we'd be able to accept everything that we were seeing and feeling and probably see and feel a lot more and stuff that's not there. I mean, you probably know these stats better than I do, Paul, but we're only cognizant of what a minute percentage of what's really out there. Um, we're, we're, the, the ego can, is only about 5% of our working consciousness. So the analogy I often use as an iceberg, what we think we know and what we're sensing as we're listening to this podcast or looking around is only about 5% of what we're actually taking in through our, well, through our senses, but through our also subtle energy senses, through our energy field. So, you know, you, you're you're dealing with, I mean, an outdated figure. There, You know, I, I've heard other figures that are much more grandiose, but I don't know them exactly. But in my physiology, some of my physiology texts, I've got a great German physiology text, and it says that we the human being on average is processing 10 billion bits of information a second. Right. And to put that in perspective, a typewritten page is about a thousand bits. So we're, you know, when you divide 10 billion by a thousand, that's a shitload of pages we're able to process every second. Yeah. Out of which the conscious mind only selects the 10 to 100 bits per second largely based on what we perceive we need to know to stay alive. In other right. words, pr- avoid threats. Right. But, uh, you know, when you like Nassim Harriman, I saw him in a lecture say that the human body has 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second. All that's being processed by the unconscious mind. I believe Bruce Lipton says the unconscious mind is about a million times more powerful and its processing power than the conscious mind. And Nassim Harriman really makes a good point. He says what we call the unconscious should be called the conscious because one, it keeps us alive, and two, it doesn't do a lot of the stupid things that the conscious mind does. You right. know, it doesn't doesn't start wars and doesn't destroy its own food supply and things like that. But uh, you know, then we have the superconscious, which is really uh, you know, the superconscious is really uh what's behind it all, uh, processing information. So then you get into non-local um, communication and, and really the, the newer functions of the mind that quantum physics has brought out. I'm curious though, I know you've done some ayahuasca uh, experiences. What, what, 
what would you describe as your experience using the ayahuasca? Well, if I learned about oneness when I was with you, it, it took it to a whole new level, my friend. It was, um, it was really intense. I mean, so I'll tell you too. So you have, I was working with a shaman down in Hawaii and you have three opportunities to take, you know, the first time everybody takes, uh, the ayahuasca and then you got a second and third opportunity if you want. I somehow missed the second opportunity. I don't know if I was out and, uh, you know, walking around outside cause I did that a little bit or if I was completely asleep cause this is Hawaii time. So we start the ayahuasca ceremony at like nine or 10 PM, which is already, I don't know, five or 6 AM Atlanta time. So it's possible I was asleep even. But uh, it wasn't, nothing was happening to me. And part of me was disappointed because I'd gone down to Hawaii to have this experience. And part of me also was disappointed because I, I wondered if it was a failing on my part in that, you know, truly being able to let go, right? I mean, because right. here I am, you know, some people might think that a lot of what I've accomplished is because I want to have absolute control over everything. And that's not exactly true, but I do know that I think letting go and just letting what happens happen is hard for anybody, but it's a state that I think I've, I've, I've tried to, to, to become more familiar with anyways. So I'm sitting there and then all of a sudden the shaman says, okay, last call. And I'm like, last call, what, what the hell? <laughs> so I go up and I go ahead and take, and then I sit down on my uh, bed where I am and, so, and I'm se seated up and I have like a, a Native American Afghan, if you can see that, like a multicolored Afghan uh, on me. Uh -huh. It's quite, quite chilly down there in the, in the night. Um, and I'm looking at this Afghan and, and then all of a sudden the Afghan starts to move. <laughs> and, yeah. And I'm like, all right, now something's finally happening. Okay. And uh, then the Afghan shapes into the shape of like a cat. And then the cat becomes like a jaguar. Uh, and then the Jaguar opens his mouth and inside his mouth is this big gigantic wormhole. And I start going down this wormhole, uh, into eventually it changes to like a circuit board. And then the circuit board changes into like the, the sinew and muscles and ligaments and tendons of the body. I'm just deep, 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 man. It's, it's, it's freaking awesome, man. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and, and then, and you know, I'm the last person to take too. So the shaman is eventually he he takes us out of the the experience as well, but I'm I'm already deep in it at this point, and I don't want to want to come out. And I hadn't moved my body since that last uh, sip of ayahuasca. Uh, I was just holding on. My eyes were closed. I didn't even realize that you can't open your eyes, but you can, and I can talk about that later. But all of a sudden, I was feeling this itch on the on my cheek, but I didn't want to itch it because I was like, if I move, I'm going to take myself out of where I am and back to the physical. It's the last thing I wanted to do because I was really enjoying this experience. And I wanted to see what grandmother was going to give me, you know? So I reach up finally and I touch this, my cheek to get this itch. And it wasn't an itch. It was a tear. Oh, wow. Uh, cool. And yeah. And what that tear was ultimately was these, I, I was crying because of the sheer freaking beauty of everything I was seeing and the understanding of, again, that complete oneness. And Ultimately, when the shaman kind of took us out of the experience and I still have my eyes closed and he said, like, anybody wants to share, people started sharing what they experienced. And I didn't actually voice any of my uh, experiences because, one, I didn't want to come out of the where I was. I thought that would bring me to the physical. Two, they were saying what I wanted to say. And three, I realized they were me. Amen. So that, 
I mean, and so what, what, what else was there to say? So I was just sitting there and we were these ethereal beings floating up in heaven, if you will, talking about the experience that we together had created and laughing almost in, in, at, at the sheer, uh, what coincidence, if you want to call it that, but it wasn't a coincidence of, of everything we had created to bring us all together at that one point in time. And you're just like, this is effing amazing. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I can throw F-bombs out here, Ball, but uh, <laughs> I think I think they can handle it. All right, good, good, because it was fucking amazing, dude. Um, yeah. And the second experience was even more so. Um, so, I mean, we could talk about that if you want. But uh, anyways, I, I, it was it was great and I look forward to it. And it's the plant medicine is the only thing I can truly say is actual medicine. Everything else is actually more of a drug, if you will. Amen. Yes, it's true. So. Uh, your second experience, what sort of realizations and experiences do you ha- did you have that, that were either different or took you beyond the first? Usually, typically people, as they do more uh, legitimate ceremonies like this, they learn to relax into it and, and not be so afraid and, and allow it to unfold. Did you find that the second one allowed you to be more accepting and, and uh, take you deeper? Well, it, I definitely went deeper, which was surprising because I thought I went really deep the first time. But so I went into it with an intention, right? Uh, and I think that's where if people have bad trips, it's because they didn't go into it with a solid intention. And my first intention was uh, basically release judgment, restore connection. Okay. That's a great one. I, I, I was pleased with it. My wife helped me come up with it. And it wasn't so much judgment of others, Paul. It was really more judgment of myself because. When I'm working with others and my work with others has has led me to believe that most of us are doing the best we can with what we have. Right. So I'm not I'm not judging others, but I also seem to have a hard time not judging myself, if you will. Right. Um, So I wanted to that was the, the intention for the first one, release judgment, restore connection. And I think I found that. Well, my next one, I almost kept that same uh, intention. But at the last moment, I decided, okay, my intention is going to be grandmother show me my ideal vibration okay my ideal frequency and whatever that is and and i'm just going to accept it and so i took the first hit nothing really happened nothing much uh although i could say something about too but anyways so i'm I'm there for the, the the second hit and uh i go ahead and take it and i'm like okay nothing's happened nothing's happened and then damn all of a sudden paul Fucking deep, man. Deep. Like <laughs> I, I went back to my birth. Okay. Like there was this time. So we're we're in this um communal area with it like a little bit of a tent on top, a uh, covering on top. And all of a sudden it starts really raining really hard on the tent. But when it was we're doing that, I was the egg, and those were the sperm coming to fertilize me. Uh and it was just they were pounding at the egg, pounding at the egg, pounding at the egg. So I was there during conception. I mean childbirth i became man woman uh i i i was i I knew what it was like to be past present future uh good bad so if you ask anybody that was down there with me they'll tell you one of the things they remember most is me laughing my ass off and one of the reasons i was laughing my ass off is because i was just mesmerized and, and tripping out over how what how how awesome the world is for the most part how funny it was that i tried to stay ahead of what grandmother was showing me 
uh, because I think I knew where she was going or I'd studied this or I'd read this, et cetera. And as soon as I thought I knew where she was going, she said, no, you don't. You're going back this direction. And it was just it was funny as hell. So I was laughing and laughing. People kept hearing that and it would start making them crack up, too. <laughs> but then then twice the laughter that was normally joyful, two times it came out like, oh, 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 oh like, like, like angry, evil laughter. I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? And you know where <laughs> no. it came from? It came it came from me because it, it we oh, all absolutely. have it. It, we, it's the good, the good, the bad. It's everything, man. I mean, but it was crazy. I was like, where's that coming from? And so the whole time I was on this verge of laughter, I was on this verge of yawning and I was on this verge of throwing up, you know, because as, as you know, uh, ayahuasca, they call it la purja. And I kept expecting to throw up. And there were times where I thought for sure I was throwing up and people were throwing up all around me. The shaman threw up. And again, part of me wanted to throw up because you want to release, you want to release um, hatred. You want to release guilt. You want to release uh, anxiety and fear and all this other stuff that's that you want to get rid of. I wanted to release disease, you know. Uh, so part of me wanted to throw up, uh, but it never truly happened, even though I thought it did. But I got to tell you this, Paul. Uh, hopefully I'm not talking to your off. No, uh, no, that's <laughs> what we're here to do, man. This is, right. you know, I, I, I'm interested because, as you know, the 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 uh, there's a reemergence of the psychedelic craze, and I really think that the things you're describing are essentially the medicine that the spirit of the plant medicines is coming to help us heal, to get past all this judgment and blockage and confusion and isolation and segregation. I mean, look at the rate of suicide and look at all these stats on how all the things like Facebook and tweeting and twatting and twitting, it's causing more and more isolation and more and more anxiety and, you know, people have, uh, you know, hundreds of friends on Facebook, but they're more isolated than ever because we're, again, we're getting trapped in our head. We're getting trapped in information technology. We're getting trapped in gadgets and we're forgetting how to live and how to love and, and how to actually see and feel the beauty that life really is. And so, you know, I, I, I'm digging the story and I would imagine most people are. Well, good, because I hope they're connecting with this because you're right. It's about the connection and and this is going to blow your mind. So at, at the end of the ceremony, you know, it, when finally people are going back, it's it's morning time. I'm going back to my, my cabin. I pass by the bathroom and I, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I feel the need to go to the bathroom. Haven't thrown up or anything like that, but I need to go to the bathroom. So I, I, I need you to understand, too, Paul, that before going on this trip, I did a week of basically vegetarianism. Okay. Uh, to, to kind of clean the system and get ready for what was going to happen. And this was at the advice of the shaman. And then the whole time I'm down there, you're having a light breakfast and a light lunch and basically no dinner. And it was so very little food. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet I felt, you know, completely invigorated and, and it was, it was great. Didn't feel like I needed much food or sleep, honestly. But so I go to the bathroom after this, after everybody else is throwing up around me, et cetera, being a little disappointed, I couldn't throw up. And I sit in the toilet and I have the biggest shit. You would not believe it. So big. I'm not joking. And I know it's disgusting for people, TMI, but I stand up, I flush it because I'm like, if I, if I do all of it right now, it's, it's going to, you know, clog up the toilet. Right. Mm -hmm. So I sit back down, finish my business. And then I go back to my cabin. And the first thing I'm gonna do is call my wife and just share with her. I want to, because my biggest disappointment about going down there was not being able to share that experience with her. But so I call her up and before I can say anything, she's like, man, it was crazy. 
this morning I woke up and I don't know what was going on. I haven't eaten anything different or anything, but man, I had the worst case of, you know, diarrhea and stuff. And you know what that was? That's, that's our connection. And she was purging just like I was purging. Yeah. She was in sympathetic resonance. Yeah. I mean, it's freaking amazing. I mean, I, it's crazy because she doesn't have, you know, she has good bowel habits typically. There's no reason for this. It was, she was purging just like me. It was, it was insane. Yeah. I've had quite a number of medicine journeys where I was so deep into God and seeing the absolute humor. I mean, yeah. I tell people God's got the greatest sense of humor there is. And I've just, I've had journey experiences that were so intense when I saw how even the darkest, most evil things are really God just, you know, put acting out through all of us. We're wearing these masks and just really we're inside of this amazing play that all is designed to elevate our conscious awareness of who and what we are and give us a chance to express our creativity and to really experience the love and connection in this three-dimensional world where separation becomes so palpably real, unlike when we're in those higher realms where we're intimately connected and there's not even this sense of disconnection. But when you come down into it and you and you also have the experience of the oneness and experiencing the consciousness of the divine, and I have laughed so hard and simultaneously cried so hard, yeah, my muscles were sore for days. I mean, it was like somebody had beaten me up because the intensity of the laughter and the tears. I mean, I've literally cried buckets while I was laughing my ass off. Yeah. At just how the seemingly saddest and scariest things, when you actually can see them in the context of the whole, turn out to be meaningful, mind-blowing, beautiful, intense, amazing. And a lot of people might be thinking, shit, well, how can something like someone that you love dying or someone getting a serious disease, how can all that be so funny? But when you realize that when you get behind the ego or the filtration system, it's it's all, we, we don't die. We, we're, we're already in a state of perfection. What we are is really the divine and everything else is an illusion that's designed to make it meaningful so that we can grow and become conscious of our potential as individuals because in that state of union, there isn't the contrast that there is as we go down into the three dimensions and lower dimensions of reality. Right. I mean, and more people need to hear that. You know, they need to experience it maybe too, because they're not going to believe it as much until they truly, it, it's, it's academic. It's not personal. It's not truly, no, it's not true knowing until they actually experience it. But you're right. You're exactly right. Well, it's like all these people that have their religious attitudes or their program beliefs that say, oh, you can't have spiritual experiences on drugs or psychedelics. And and I say, okay, well, uh, if you want to test that theory, uh, I can support you. (laughs) Or I, I know people that can for sure. Right. And so far, every single yogi and advanced meditator. I remember one time I had a a Buddhist monk come to me and through channels, he had found that I I might be somebody that could help him. And so 
one thing led to another, but he said, you know, I, I keep hearing about all these people having these plant medicine journeys and having experiences that they say are deeper than we're likely to get on meditation. And he says, quite frankly, I don't believe it. I just smiled. I said, is that right? He said, but I want to test it. So long story made short, uh, I arranged for him to have a ceremony. Okay. And uh, uh, let me tell you, when he got into the depths of it, man, this guy was screaming so loud and he was just in complete terror because of he, as the medicine was kicking in and he was losing his ego yeah he, he thought he was dying yeah but he realized as the as he got to the right point in the in the ceremony where he wasn't dying but that he became one with all that is but the punchline is is when he came out of it he just looked at me and shook his head and he said oh my god he said i meditated I was a monk for two years. I meditated every day, often for hours, eight hours at a time, long time fasting, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. He said, I never even got close to that. He said, it's, he said, there's not even a comparison. He, you know, he says, I, I, I would imagine I have to meditate for years and years in a cave to get an experience like that. I said, well, mother nature has her own mechanisms for, uh, saving you from the cave. And I quoted Terrence McKenney, who, who said, uh, you can sweep the monastery floor for seven years, or you can do one hit of DMT. It's up to you. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, I think that these things are important. But as you know, I'm also one that warns people, don't just do this foolishly or do it with someone that's not skilled. And, uh, you know, I've had too many people that count come back from their jungle experiences completely scrambled, lost, and broken because there's a real art and science to dosing and creating the right environment and keeping people safe and knowing how to deal with people when they when they're unconscious. You know, because the un, right. the unconscious is Pandora's box. So what people call a bad trip is actually really just a chance to see all your programming and, and all your false beliefs and, and see the behaviors that you are expressing in relationship to other people that really aren't serving you or them. Yeah. But something I, I agree, Paul. I mean, I, I, I would, you, you know me, I haven't done a freaking lick of drugs anywhere. I mean, I'm as clean as a whistle. Yeah. And I went into this having researched it quite a bit, uh, talked to another student of yours, Nicole Devaney, I guess her name is. Devaney. Yeah. Yeah. Devaney. Uh, talked with her, did, did some reading on the subject, did a lot of talking to other people who had done stuff. Obviously, I had some experience um, and, and some knowledge from you, etc. cetera. Uh, and and, and the, the shaman, you know the shaman. So the fact that y'all knew each other gave me that much more confidence. Otherwise, I don't know that I would have taken this chance, but I do think you need to do it with somebody who knows what the hell they're doing because otherwise it could end up very badly. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, you know, the thing is, is a lot of people, I mean, I can understand the social kind of stigma because most people don't have the knowledge. Like my mother, for example, she she has a really hard time with the fact that I use any kind of plant medicines, even though I, you know, I have a medicine man spirit guide license. I'm part of a Native American council. I work within the confines of the council's directives under the federal guidelines for healing ceremony. So I'm not doing anything illegal or dangerous. I'm really just helping people using the tool chest that nature put in front of us. But it wouldn't matter how much evidence I put in front of my mother. I've 
given her mountains of things to read and she just sort of turns a blind eye to it and says, you know, you can't use that kind of stuff. It's all drugs and blah, blah, blah. That's not real spiritual development. And a a lot of people have those opinions, but until you understand that the typical kind of classification drug is what you use to cover up pain or alter your consciousness so you don't have to deal with the crisis that you're creating for yourself or to compensate for not taking responsibility for yourself or, you know, to use drugs effectively. I mean, there's a purpose for drugs. I mean, if you're, you know, I remember when I broke my left leg in five places cliff diving, the pain was very, very intense and they gave me morphine. And when the morphine would wear off, the pain was just brutal. So I would like push the little button to the nurse, give me some more of that morphine. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's what drugs are supposed to be used for. But unfortunately, as you know, due to the amount of money being made off the things, the drug industry and the medical industry is now just uh, avoiding the issue of real healing and turning everybody into drug addicts. If you got a pimple, you need a drug. If you got a wrinkle, you need a drug. If you're assets take this drug so the the whole concept of drugs has been very confused with regard to legitimate plant medicines and i think you know part of the reason that people have all these biases is because of programming but the reality of it is the more biased you are like that the more beneficial a plant medicine experience is probably going to be because it's a measure your bias and your resistance to wise counsel, scholarly people writing massive books and thousands of articles and piles of research showing how healing these things can be used in a proper setting by skilled um, uh, skilled guides. Uh, so when people actually do have the experience, a lot of them ultimately have to face their own embarrassment for how dogmatic they've been and how wrong they've been. Yeah, I mean, I, of, I think that we'll probably go hand in hand with, uh, some, some of the people that I was down there with, you know, they had done, they worked down there. And so they'd done multiple, multiple, multiple sessions. Uh, one person told me this was after my second session, that that was his hundredth session. Uh, and yet that was the first time he was able to go as deep as we all went. And I think that's because of, again, layers of programming that we all have. And so everybody's experience is going to be a little bit different and maybe each time a little bit more therapeutic um, just based off what you need. Grandmother's going to know exactly what you need and she's going to give it to you. Yeah, there's no question. And, you know, the the idea or the concept of past lives, you, you know, triggers a lot of people because there's a lot of confusion about that, mostly due to our scientific materialistic programming. But um, I know from my own experiences, I've done over 400 ceremonies with plant medicines myself uh in my career and one you can you can never ever get to where you think you know it's going to happen the day you get cocky and think oh i got this is the day you're going to get your ass handed to you yeah two we we have so much programming not only from this lifetime but past lifetimes in order for us to really steam clean our heart and get to where we can really live and love fully and forgive and support and grow and become a real citizen of the world, uh, we have to go through a fair bit of healing. And I've, I've had experiences, for example, you know, when my brother committed suicide, it was intensely painful for my whole family. And it was certainly a, a, 
I mean, to this day, I still blow smoke to him every morning and connect to him and send him love on his journey. But I remember the first time that was brought up to me by the plant medicines and they were helping me heal, but the pain was so fucking intense, man. I was just, I was crying so hard and felt so much remorse and so much sadness and so much pain. And, and finally, when that medicine wore off after about six hours, in this case, I felt a lot better. Um, I felt like I'd taken a lot of burden off. I felt like I, I, the, like the the gate, the door, the veil between my brother and I was was a lot thinner, and um, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd healed that, but long story made short, it took five future ceremonies, which did not come in sequence. All of a sudden, boom! I would get hit. I'm like, oh my god! I cannot believe I still have this much pain left, and I would go through it again. And I, when I went through my midlife crisis at 50, I was doing a, a ceremony, a healing ceremony with Angie, and she's a highly trained shaman, as I imagine you probably know. Yeah. And I think just because of the safety and security of having her as my guide, I went through a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, clearing of the pain of my brother's suicide. So that was like the fifth time. Fortunately, that well, that was about eight years ago now, and I've never had to revisit that one again. But the point being is, <clears throat> we we definitely get caked in layers, and and, and spirit, in my experience, won't unveil more to you than you're really capable of handling if you breathe into it and you open your heart. If you resist it, then you can just rest assured she'll be waiting for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what I was told. Like if you see something that scares you during this time, you know, during, during your journey, go face it, don't run from it, you know? And that's, that's what definitely what I tried to do. Uh, I, I actually have a question for you, Paul, about this. I'd love to get your take. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I was, so during the, the second ceremony where I went so deep, there was a guy sitting next to me um, and he was from Bali and he had given me uh, this stone. I forget what it's called, but it, it you know, it absorbs, uh, you know, energy from the sun. And so it literally glows at night. It's, it's oh yeah, like I've seen them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, and he said, you know, just hold on to this. You might, you know, might find it um, interesting to, to, yeah, soothing to have during the ceremony, etc. So I, I took it into uh, one of my hands. I guess it was the, the, it's the left hand, the receiving hand, the right hand's the giving. Yeah, le- left hand's feminine. Sometimes they're called moonstones. Okay. Okay. So I, I was holding it in my hand and uh, just just kept it there the, the entire ceremony. But there came a point where I looked over at my 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 friend next sitting next to me, and his soul kept getting up and walking into this light, getting up and walking to this light. And the shaman was singing and playing guitar and stuff. And the, some of the songs like just let it go, walk to the light, etc. And I'm not lying to you, my friend. I thought at that point I'm choosing right now between life and death. And as you well know, I've been fighting for my life for, for 15 years. Um, and it, it gets tiring sometimes. And the, the, the song kept going on. I kept wanting the ceremony to, to be over because I wasn't scared. What I was, was I was realized that, that, that heaven is so awesome and, and it has everything that you could ever want. Good, bad, you know, a, a constant, I mean, this sounds crazy, but I was in a constant state of like, orgasmic ecstasy the entire time laughing my ass off screaming i mean and i was 
wanting to enjoy all that. And I kept wanting to go into the life. But the only thing that kept me here is wanting to share this with Diana, you know, my wife. And, yes, yeah. and, 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 and I was really scared that, I mean, scared that if I walked in, that would be it. And I still believe to this day that if I had walked into that light, I, I'd be gone. I would have just gone into nothingness or whatever. And I would have, would have died and that would have been okay. Uh, and I think honestly, my wife would have understood because I felt like she was there with me, but I, I felt like maybe something that I, I wasn't, haven't finished whatever it is that I'm on this earth to do, you know, on this plane to do. And so I, I stayed, uh, but I really feel like if I'd walked into the light, I'd be gone. And I wonder if you think that's just a bunch of bullshit or, or what? <laughs> no, I've had many of those experiences and I have gone into the absolute completely lost my sense of knowing I was even alive. Basically, you know, by the way, was that on ayahuasca? Yes, sir. Yeah. So ayahuasca has got a couple of names. One is vine of the soul. And sometimes it's referred to as the vine of death because it actually takes you through a death experience. And so what you're really having, if you study the work of Ray Moody or, or, uh, some of the researchers on reincarnation, like Ian Stevenson, you'll find that the stories that people tell in their near-death experiences and the experiences that people, there's also what are called shared death experiences. And there's thousands of them recorded now where people who are with family members or people that they love, say in a hospital or, or as the per person's dying, they somehow go into the death experience with them and they experience exactly what NDE survivors describe, except they had no drugs or anything. They were just standing there. But again, due to the sympathetic resonance, they're actually shifted consciously to being one with the person dying. Right. So the the thing is, is that I remember I, uh, in one specific ceremony, I was just really, really deep. And I'm facing the abyss of the absolute. And I could feel a vortex pulling me into what I would describe as, as the zero point where everything just completely and utterly disappears. And I, I just felt if I go one iota further, mm -hmm. I'm going to lose everything. I won't know who I am, what I am, where I am. I'll never know if I had a family. I will be completely and utterly gone. Yeah. And the presence of the divine or of God was with me. And I said, I'm scared. I said, I, I, I've got a, uh, I've got my, my, at this time I didn't have Mana and Zoe. I said, you know, I've got Paul Jr. And I know he needs my help. I've got my institute. I've got, you know, I really feel an obligation to support the world with the knowledge. And I feel like I came to the world to do that. Mm -hmm. And the voice of the divine said to me, as long as you want to be in charge and make the choices to guide your life, I am completely devoted to supporting you. But if you want to know what it is to be one with me, you must let go and trust me. Right, right. And so at that particular time, I was too afraid. But in other experiences, I was able to completely let go. And it's just, you know, there's not really words you can use to describe it. But you basically have to be brave enough to die. When I'm, you know, conducting healing ceremonies where particularly with more experienced people, I always tell people in general, if you're not ready to die, you should not 
go into an ayahuasca ceremony or a plant ceremony. Because if you're not ready to die, then you're not ready to let go of your ego and you're never really going to get the benefits of the divinity that's always with us, but we're not able to listen to because we're too busy in our heads being God ourselves. But uh, having been through those experiences, what I've found is, you know, there's the story of life. And I mean, the grand story, life itself is something that's created by all of us, past, present and future. We're all co-authors in it. And what I found is the number of times, and I've been I've been into the absolute with no drugs, no medicines. I've done it with Tai Chi. I've done it with meditation. Actually, my first total union experience where I became one with the universe and just had a mind-boggling experience was when Paul Jr. was being born and I was watching him come out of the birth canal. And as his little body came out of Sue's vagina and womb, you know, I just, all of a sudden it was as though the best way I could describe it was I became a living rainbow that reaches, reached to the edges of infinity. And I just burst with tears of joy and, and connection and just the blessing of, you know, I was only 18 years old, but something, something just split me wide open. And, and it's really the kind of experience you might have on DMT or ayahuasca, but, uh, so, you know, the point I'm making is is that to really let go, one has to be ready to die. But the deeper point that I'm making is it seems like you will die. In fact, the experience you're describing is exactly what I see when I'm doing shamanic work with people to mm-hmm. like a lot of people come to me because someone in their family's died. They're worried about it. They want to find out how they are. And a lot of them get caught in the middle realm because they've got so much religious programming and they fear that they've sinned so much and that, you know, that basically God will burn them in hell. So they actually are afraid of the light. So they won't go in it. And some of these people can hover in these middle dimensions and become ghosts for, you know, three, four, five, six hundred years because they're so conditioned to believe that, that they're afraid of God, which is the most, you know, for, for me, that's the proof of the old saying the devil's favorite place to hide is in the church because for for religion to program it into people i i I believe that is 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 an ultimate sin but uh what i'm really saying is is that when you get inside of it deep enough and you develop enough legitimate spiritual trust in what god really is not some idea written on paper but a legitimate experience of god you come to realize that the ego will give you the experience like mine did thinking, oh, my God, if I go one step further, I'm going to be annihilated. But once you get inside the absolute, it's not like you're conscious. There's nothing to be conscious of there because there's no duality anymore. You're in a state of of uh, non-dual experience, right. which you can't describe with words because there's no I-thou relationship. You, you Somehow you're just one with it. You're just pure, unadulterated awareness, pure unadulterated consciousness. But when when I come out and I meditate on what happened, what I realize is that we're all co-writing the story and that even if you enter into the the absolute of God, that the story itself pulls us back. In other words, if our part of the play hasn't concluded and we still want to participate, 
Mm-hmm. Paradoxically, it's the people like you said, your wife or my wife or my friends or my students or my family or all the souls that have soul contracts with us that we may not even met yet that draw us back in out of love and say, please come play with us before you dissolve into the divine ocean. So I think that the real point that I'm trying to share to answer your question is we're so used to being on our own heads and thinking things out for ourselves and solving problems for ourselves, And because of that, to the degree that any medicine or experience dissolves that ego structure, we think we're going to die. And we think that that death is going to be terminal because that's what it feels like. But it takes a pretty seriously big set of spiritual balls to pass through the gate of that needle from the relative to the absolute where there is just no I thou anymore because yeah. you have to have complete trust. And having been through that experience, you know, many times now, I come to realize that we're all doing this together and we're all doing this to really become aware of what love is, which paradoxically you can't do until you realize what love isn't. And the higher you go closer to God, there is no concept of what love isn't. It's all, you know, the closer you get to God, the more unconditional love you get. It's nothing but love. Right. So paradoxically, there's everything, but you can't perceive it as this or that. You are just one with it. Anything else is a condition. Because you can't contrast it, right? And that's, yeah. And so that's exactly what the story of Adam and Eve is, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't know they were naked because they were unconscious. But once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of a sudden they realized they were naked. Well, that's what consciousness it is. And paradoxically, that's the only way God can actually be conscious that it is God. And that's really what we are. We're, we're like neurons in the mind of God experiencing what it is because there's nothing outside of God to have an experience with. By definition, God is that for which there is no other. So the only experience it can have is inside of itself. And paradoxically, the only experience we can have is inside of ourselves. You might be talking to me right now and listening to me, but you're only hearing me inside yourself. If you look out your window, or you look around the room, you might see things. I'm looking at paintings on the wall and sculptures by my mother and beautiful mountain views. But the reality of it is those things are only happening inside of me. Yeah, That doesn't mean the mountain's not there, but it means if I wasn't here to experience it for all intensive purposes, it wouldn't be here. Right. So it's only through consciousness, which creates the illusion of separation, that we can actually come to realize what we couldn't realize when we we're in a state of unity. And ultimately, through one life or many lives, whichever way you want to slice it, um, we can get to the point where we become conscious enough so that when we die, we can maintain the consciousness. And then we become truly self-realized. Then we become a Buddha or an awakened person. And then at that moment, God celebrates its knowing of what it is because simultaneously our awareness of what God is, is God's awareness as paradoxical as that seems, but it, it, I cannot find evidence for anything more true than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you know, you've had a pretty tough journey. I mean, we, we, we haven't touched on this yet, but I think it's time to kind of take the old cap off the story here. Tell us about the whole situation when you got diagnosed with leukemia and how did that 
I mean, what, 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 tell us about that journey. I remember that. I mean, that was intense, man. And leukemia is not something very many people survive. So yeah, that had to have been a pretty wild journey for you, especially as an elite athlete to, to realize that you were suffering from a very serious disease. Take us on that journey. Well, that, that's the craziest thing is, uh, you know, you think you're, you think you're an athlete, you think you're healthy and, and literally as, as clean as a whistle. And honestly, I was already kind of deep into the Czech paradigm of treating my body well. Um, cause I started studying with you probably in what, 2000, or 2001, I can't remember. And it was diagnosed in 2004. Um, but it, what, what happened is I was doing Ironman Lake Placid and had an incredible swim, incredible bike, uh, and then started the run and just completely fell apart. Um, and up until that point, I'd never, you know, I'd quit one race in my life, my first professional, my first European professional race, uh, and would never quit again after that. And, uh, I wasn't going to quit, but pain got so brutal that 15 miles into the marathon, I kind of pulled off the course and, uh, then walked back, uh, to my hotel room where my wife was watching the race on TV and just knocked on the door. She opened it. I just fell into her arms, just crying like a, like a freaking baby. Um, cause I was, I was just, I couldn't believe I had to quit, but I did. And then we go home to Atlanta and um, get some, you know, doctor visits going and blood work and stuff. And my white blood cells um, were forty five thousand, I think, or something like that. They eventually peaked up at one hundred ten thousand, and for reference, they should be no higher than about ten, usually between four and ten. <laughs> That's a big difference. Yeah, and, and what's crazy is, you know, uh, I mean, you've been a triathlete. Uh, you know, you started off as a triathlete at, at one point in your career or athletic career. Yeah, I've done. Quite a number of them. Yeah, I was the Army's representative in the Hilton Head National Championships in '86. Okay, so so you understand that you know you're you're at the point where you know, a lot of times you're walking around tired because you train your ass off, right? Yeah. And uh, there's probably times where I wasn't training as intelligently as I should, etc. But I think I was doing better than most, considering my my background and stuff. Anyways, so there's this insidious, uh, you know, creeping of increasing levels of fatigue and. Uh, you don't know that you're tired until all of a sudden you're, you're freaking, it hits you, you know, straight in the face. But anyways, so the interesting thing is I, I got the call from my doctor on a Friday PM. And so when your doctor calls you on a, you know, Friday night at like 8 PM, you know, that the results are not going to be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's like, yeah, uh, you need to come in. Uh, and we, but we think you have, well, he actually he didn't tell me what he thought. He's like, but your white blood cells are extremely elevated. I said, how elevated? He's like 45,000. And I know enough about the body to realize what that meant as far as cancer. I didn't know exactly the type of leukemia, but so, but it's Friday and what I do on Saturday, I, I go train, you know I mean? Cause that's, that's what I do. And I'll tell you, the only thing that changed between the, the Friday and the Saturday of going to train was the knowledge that I was sick and that bicycle ride was like, I was carrying a freaking 45 pound plate on my shoulders. It was so incredibly hard. And it just shows you the, the, the mental aspect of, you know, the weight that we carry when we have that stress on us, whether it be bad news of health or bad news of financial or, you know, or whatever it's, it was brutal. Um, and, and, and things only got worse from there, Paul, <laughs> I mean, got to the point where I couldn't crawl up stairs without being completely out of breath. And, uh, went through a period of approximately three days where on a scale of one to 10, I had bone pain, which was everywhere, you know, so fingertips down to toes, bone pain. That was a constant eight 
you know, sometimes nine, sometimes 10. And I was like, this ain't worth it. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just end it right now. Um, yeah, that's intense. I mean, uh, and, and I think I have a decent pain threshold, but it was just, this is this, if this is what life is, this sucks, you know? Uh, well, as a, as a professional cyclist, man, I'll just interject and say, I've, I think, you know, enough about me. I've done a lot of intense athletic competitions and I was an elite soldier and I've pushed myself to extreme levels. I've never had more pain than doing a 25 mile time trial in cycling and pushing myself to the extreme and literally feeling my whole body drowning in lactic acid and metabolic waste. And, and, you know, the, the level that you have to push yourself at to be at the level you were at as a cyclist for you to say that you were, you know, ready to throw the towel. And that's a real level of saying this was bad, dude. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was also the fact that, you know, the first five weeks after being diagnosed, we were doing, we were trying to do some just pure holistic treatment and stuff. Uh, I mean, I was being monitored by a hematologist, obviously, but I didn't want to pollute my body with anything that was synthetic or chemical or otherwise. Uh, and I, I understand now that there's, you know, there, there's a, a nice uh, area where the, the, the homeopathic and the holistic perspective can work with a conventional medicine. Um, but then I just wasn't ready to take anything that wasn't healthy for my body. And in five weeks, we went through $10,000 out of pocket. And I was like, this, this can't last very long either. I just, I can't afford that. Uh, I was also working, you know, uh, sick as a dog. In fact, here, here's a funny story. So this was during what 2004, and we had, I think, I think two, maybe four hurricanes come through uh, Atlanta during that 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 year, um, yeah. and we knocked. We we ended up losing, uh, I think, three trees in my front yard. But I was at work one time. I was sick with a cold because my immune system was shot. Meaning, I I mean, just completely. But I had to make money because that's. That's the only thing that was paying for my uh, medical uh, fees at the time. And feeding so, your family. <laughs> and feeding my family too, yeah. So I get this call right as I get in my car to come home. It's it's late at night. It's pouring down rain. It's cold. And my wife's crying on the other end. And she says, baby, uh, we, we've been out of power for a couple of hours. I've been bailing out the basement, you know, the sump pump down the basement. And I, I just, I can't, we need to get something. So can you go by Home Depot and get a generator? And the last thing I want to do at this point was, you know, not, come home but i was like all right yeah so i, I went home i went to the home depot no freaking generators of course because everybody had gotten a generator at that point right so i go to my cousin's house who he's the guy who built our house and um i pick up a generator for him we put it in my back seat because it won't fit in my trunk i'm driving over to the house i'm thinking i'm driving carefully but long story short uh by the time i get to the house the the, the generators turned over the gas is spilled out all in my car uh you know, the freaking no electricity, our basement's flooding. I'm sick as a dog. We got no money. And on top of everything, I have leukemia and I'm dying. And I'm just like, what the fuck? You know, you, you, you just had to laugh. I mean, it was, it was so, I was like, this is definitely a Job experience as far as biblical Job. Yes, indeed. You know, God, yeah. God's definitely tested me. And I'm, I mean, I don't know what the test was at the time, but, uh, it was, uh, uh, a, a brutal experience. And I was happy that those days are, are, are behind me, you know? Yeah. Now, interestingly, what I'm hearing you say, if I'm right, you found that there is a time and a place for Western medicine. Yeah. I mean, again, I think you told me this. There's no such thing as a mal-prescribed drug, a mal-prescribed medicine, a mal-prescribed 
food. Uh, sorry, not a bad, I should say, yeah. but it's just how, how they're prescribed. Yeah, there's no such thing uh, as a bad drug or a bad exercise, only a, an incorrectly prescribed drug or exercise. Exactly. And so um, I, I'm, I'm on a oral chemo. It's it's called Gleevec. It's the first uh, targeted chemo that they've developed. Uh, and now they've got even more second and third and fourth generation ones. Um, so that's what ultimately put me in remission as far as hematologic remission. Uh, 17 days after I started taking it. So that shows you how powerful it is. However, I will say that it is my background with the Czech Institute training with proper nutrition and lifestyle that has allowed me, one, to tolerate the injustice of the chemo. Yes. To two, be on the lowest dose of the chemo as opposed to the highest dose uh, and, and doses in between, of course. And then also, there aren't any people with leukemia or there weren't at the time that we're doing what I was doing, which was eventually coming back to triathlon and uh, racing the Hawaii Ironman and then going on to win an Ironman and other stuff. Like most of the people that I was seeing at the doctor's office and that MD Anderson, you know, they've got masks on their face, lost all their hair, they're in wheelchairs. And I mean, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm lucky, but I think some of that's because of how I've treated my body leading up to the disease having the disease and, and then after diagnosis, of course. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and you were working through this whole thing. I mean, I remember talking to you and talking to people. Uh, I ran, ran into a couple of people that had mentioned to me that they had seen you as a client and that, you know, you were really struggling, but you were still keeping a smile on your face, which was a miracle to hear in itself. So, you know, you're, holistic underpinning, as you say, certainly seems to have given you a depth of reserves that most people just don't have. In fact, one of my best friends in school, uh, Steve Clark, in fact, the longest hike I ever did in the mountains I did with Steve Clark. I think we were both 16. He died when he was 17. He got diagnosed with leukemia and he wasn't, but three or four months later, he was dead. And, you know, leukemia is a, a, a it's not a, pretty diagnosis. I mean, the chances of surviving that don't look good for most people. And for you to be able to work through that and put up with all you did and the financial pressures and the stress that that creates in a family and the fear, and to be able to not only use the lower doses of chemo, but come out and go back to competitive Ironman uh, triathlons is is pretty freaking amazing. And I, I, I really think that your DVD documentary really, uh, I think is a powerful source of inspiration for anybody out there. Yeah. That, um, I mean, the, the documentary is called living is winning and it's, it's actually a, a buddy of mine who is a filmmaker. And he, when I, when I qualified for Hawaii, at first I, I came back to triathlon in 2005, uh, after the diagnosis in August of 2004, uh, and then it's funny because I told myself I wasn't getting into the water uh, until I was out of, uh, or in, in, I should say, hematologic remission, meaning my white blood cells were normal because I was just, I was scared of the chlorine. I knew it wasn't necessarily a good thing for me. Right. So I was, I was avoiding anything that was going to be added stress to my system. But the idea of triathlon and the goal of, of racing again gave me a little, little something to, to shoot for and that much more motivation. Not that life shouldn't be or that family and shouldn't be, but it was it was it was something that drew me. Let's put it that way. Yes. Um, 
But and I can remember too, Paul, going to my first or like my white blood cells are finally normal. I'm gonna go swim for the first time. So I drive 20 minutes to go to the pool. I get in the shower, rinse off, you know, put on the, the my swimsuit, um, go to the pool. I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm gonna do do I don't know how many hours of, of swimming. I did one lap across the 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 pool. I was freaking exhausted. I was like, all right, I'm done. And that that's that's what that was the start of my comeback to triathlon, one lap across the pool. Uh, that sounds just that so, sounds exactly like my entry to triathlon. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, probably a lot of people's entries into triathlon. I never yeah. I never really learned to swim properly as a kid. So my my father drowned when I was eight and I had this oh. I had this constant morbid voice in my head telling me, You must learn to swim. You don't want to go the way of your father and and sadly my sister's son drowned when he was three and a half which was another real heart wrencher um so with that sort of lingering in the family when i joined the army i decided that i wanted to become a triathlete and uh, learn to swim and long story made short my my first sergeant in our company uh, found out I was a fitness guy and that I was super healthy because I kept winning all these military competitions for athletics. So he called me in one day and said, "Check, I want you to train all the fat guys because uh, he had had the record for quite a number of years for the highest company average on the army physical fitness test. So a company has 250 men roughly in it. And he had had the highest score. Uh, 300 is the highest score. I think he had 240 was the highest average for an entire company, but he had just lost the the competition and got knocked off. So when he heard about me, he calls me in very early in the morning and says, I would like you to take over training the fat guys. We, you know, there was like 50 or 55 guys that were pretty much obese and out of shape. He said, I cannot lose this competition again. I just won't have it. And he was a badass soldier, this guy, ex-Vietnam warrior, you know, all sorts of records and, uh, you know, uh, medals and, you know, the the hardcore ass kicker dude. And uh, I, I said, OK, I, I'll do it. But can I make a request? He said, sure. I said, I want to take swimming lessons because I want to do triathlon. So could I skip our regular PT, physical training, and go take swimming lessons at the pool? He said, absolutely. So I took over the fat guys. I conditioned them up. And then we set the all-time military record. Our company average went to 268, which had previously been unheard of. And so I got to spend a year going to swimming lessons. And I remember the first time I swam a mile, it took me like 35 minutes. It's not it, bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I got to the point, you know, swimming is a skill that you really start you, to to be an elite swimmer. You, you know, when I was doing triathlons, I was usually coming out of the water in like 100th, 105th place, and I'd have to bike and run them down. I managed to finish in the top 10. Uh, actually, I finished in the top six, uh, 10, six times. And mm-hmm. uh, But my swimming was always my weak spot. So I got to where I could swim a 25 minute mile. That was the best I could do uh, in the in the uh, years I was training triathlon, but it, it at least got me within striking distance. So one thing that keeps coming up with me though, you know, your wife, she's, I mean, hats off to your wife, man. Yeah, no shit. Shit. I mean, 
my 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 wife Penny supported me through everything, and you know I've got two wives, and Angie supports me beautifully, and I've met your wife. She's a beautiful, amazing woman. Isn't it just amazing the powerful the power of of a committed, loving relationship, and how we ultimately can come to the realization we cannot make it through life without love? Yeah, uh, and, and interesting that you brought that up because. So I haven't told many people this story, um, but so a lot of people say, you know, damn, you were the healthiest person we know. How the hell did you get leukemia? Well, I mean, I've I've, I've read stuff about uh, father issues in leukemia. I've read stuff about head trauma and leukemia. Both of those things I've had, obviously. Yes. But 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 I'll tell you where I think it starts. And I think I mean, I think you might you might agree with me. I think most stuff that is maybe inexplicable, maybe there's not a direct trauma cause is caused by some type of emotional uh etiology let's put it that way and there was a period in our life where my wife and i were contemplating having kids and uh i i i didn't have a father figure really so i was probably super scared about being a dad you know um and yet the woman that i loved the woman i wanted to spend every second of my life with really wanted to have kids and and yet I didn't I didn't feel like I could give that to her and so I remember being at work and wanting to come home and yet not wanting to be with my wife because I knew the subject matter was going to turn to having a kid and I just wasn't ready and it was scary and it, and it and I went through such a I mean it was pulling me on both sides and it just tore me apart and and then when we finally decided to pull the trigger we were about to do it that's when I got diagnosed and and I I really think it was a lot of the physical stuff I've been through as a, as a professional athlete combined with the emotional turmoil that, that, that set the stage for the leukemia just to, 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 to start. You know? Yeah. Well, a dimension I'll add to that. All that you've just said is absolutely true in my experience, having worked with countless people that are, you know, in dire straits of all, of all types. Yeah. But, one of the things that I've found in my studies uh, in depth psychology, in metaphysics, in various spiritual uh, philosophies, be it Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, you know, the variety of studies, a lot of these, you know, religions, as you know, have factions that go against each other. Like there's 33,000 different branches of Christianity all claiming to have the right uh, interpretation of the Bible, etc. So the point I'm making is, is that this isn't a unified uh, belief, but nothing is. But what I found through my own work and, you know, doing my shamanic practices, soul recovery, astral travel, um, speaking with my guides, with my soul and asking questions of my soul, which I have deep, deep trust in because it's done nothing but make my life better, is that yeah. Typically, the more advanced a soul is, the bigger the challenge they will take on in their life. And often, more evolved souls will take on diseases. Sometimes children come in and take on diseases specifically to teach their family how to love and how to die. And I've met many yeah. people like yourself that are amazing people that even live healthy lives. And for example, when I was a kid, Two of my mother's friends who were were teachers at the Self-Realization Fellowship Temple that we went to were very healthy people. Both of them were school teachers. They were two of the most loving, amazing people I've ever met in my life. 
Well, the husband, Steve, got brain cancer and died very quickly. And a year later, his wife got brain cancer and died. And I remember being a teenager going, what? This doesn't make any sense. How in the world could this happen? But when I talked to monks about these things and and meditated on it and talked to my soul and, you know, working with people that I've worked with that come to me with diseases and things, and I look at their history and I look at their their life, their all the paperwork and all the assessments we do as Czech professionals, and two and two just don't add up. Yeah. And so I've investigated and spoke to their own souls and found out on a number of occasions in my career that people actually choose to have a disease prior to coming in because it will bring them face to face with growth opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that's a real aspect that a lot of people don't look at because they're just not spiritually evolved enough or open enough to explore those concepts. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, not just for me, but for everybody, the challenges in our life are there to redirect us and or make us better. Uh, And you don't necessarily succeed every time, but it's an opportunity for growth for damn sure. Well, as the old saying goes, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, fuck, life kills you. (laughs) Yeah. You start dying the day you're born. So, yeah. But as I tell people, you know, don't get too trapped up in fear about death because life and death, death are just the names for two halves of a circle. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. Um, something that I should tell you too, Paul, because I don't think you know this. Um, my father-in-law went to the hospital, what, a little over a week ago uh, and was diagnosed with colon cancer, which is metastasized to his liver and all over his body. And we brought him home, I think this past Thursday to, to die. And uh, we live next door to my, my in-laws. Uh, we, we bought a plot of land uh, when I got back from Spain and Europe after a professional cycling and we built the house a little bit later. Uh, but so they're right next door and uh, he may die today. He may die in the next 24, 48 hours. But uh, I, I do believe, you know, he's just going, his, his energy goes on. And now the physical existence of who he was passes, but um, he, he's, he continues. Let's put it that way. Well, Moment of silence of love and blessings for him on his journey. Thank you, my friend. It's freaking hard, dude. It is. Uh, I've I've been there, losing my dad, losing my brother, yeah. losing my grandparents, losing you know my sister, losing her son. Um, but you know, I know from all my experiences, and I think you probably know from your ayahuasca experiences and the things we've done together that death isn't really death it's birth into a an experience of reconnection and reawakening to the truth of what life and love's really all about and as hard as it is if you just keep your mind there and try to reassure him that it'll all be okay and just give him the space to know that Source is always with us, and that uh, yeah. love is love is beyond body. Well, uh, I think the 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 good part is that you know, obviously he, he's he's not conscious now. He's really close. Okay, 
Uh, I mean, and so he's not maybe able to understand exactly what he's going through. I, I don't know. In fact, he was even brain injured, as I, as I may have said to you. He was in a coma for 11 days uh, 21 years ago. So we almost we, we lost him 21 years ago so that we got a gone for another two decades is, is, a, is a blessing. But I think and I, and I completely agree, having experienced what I've experienced, that like literally you're going on to a, uh, to become part of all, which is going to be freaking awesome. But it, it's what's hard for me right now, Paul, is, uh, you know, I lost my dad in August uh, and and then the seeing what my wife, you know, is about to lose her dad and, and how much I love her and what she's feeling. I think the mirror neurons in me experiences that deeply. And then also thinking about what she may be experiencing maybe any time now with with the loss of her husband, meaning me, uh, sometime in the future, you know, because I mean, that it, we know how the story ends, you know, as far as on this, on this plane. And it's, it's, uh, it sucks sometimes, you know, I mean, it's, it's beautiful and yet it sucks. And yet I guess you have to have the suck to understand and appreciate the non-suck, right? Yeah. Well, yin and yang need each other, but they forever create each other. And, you know, if there was no death, there could be no life um, without going into a long explanation of that. But if we just look around us, if you if you can imagine, as long as the world's been here, if nobody ever died, yeah, we would have destroyed the place, warred each other to death, run it all down, killed every animal, every insect, and it would be a living hell. So... Personally, I think death is a chance to make room for the other souls that need to come into the schoolyard and get the lessons they've come to learn. But having had my own death experiences, I've been so deep on the medicines and actually wanted to die and practice letting go and actually ask my soul to stop my heart. And I had a profound experience of my heart stopping and I was monitoring my pulse. And all of a sudden I found myself in a completely other dimension. And it was mind boggling. Paradoxically, uh, very interestingly, I found myself standing on top of a mountain on a planet that looked very similar to earth, but was in another dimension. And I was, the first thing that hit me was, wow, I'm breathing. And the air is the freshest air I've ever breathed in my life. And I'm looking out and seeing the stars in the sky and the beauty. And then all of a sudden I realized I, I'm I'm not in my body. I'm, I'm in my light body. I'm looking at myself and I can see inside myself like I'm looking into a galaxy. But my sense of being myself was completely intact. And then when I came back into my body, I have no idea how many seconds or minutes because you know when you're deep in the medicines like that time loses its shape and form but i i asked spirit to give me that experience because i really needed to have some kind of an authentic experience of the death experience so that i could help others and 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 answer some of my own questions so i i can only say for myself death doesn't scare me at all i've practiced dying and i i look forward to the day I die. In fact, prior to Mana being born, the earth plane had gotten a bit boring for me. And I just really was like, okay, 
great spirit, anytime you want to hit me with lightning and take me somewhere else, go ahead. But once Mana came along, I got so reinvigorated and my heart just blew wide open and having Angie's love and Penny's love and, uh, you know, a number of factors, I, I just, it, it shifted me to now I'm, I'm happy to stay and do my work. And, and I've grown so much through my healing of that midlife crisis, just as you've grown so much through the healing of your leukemia and all the experiences you've lived through that now I actually love every day. And now, you know, I feel so grateful for everything I have in my life and the friends I have and great relationships, people like yourself that I can really be completely open and, and honest with about anything without it causing trouble. And I think that, uh, you know, without death, we wouldn't really have a sense of, of appreciation for life. We would take it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't take it seriously. So for what it's worth, uh, all I'm sharing is that it's a beautiful thing. Yogananda says death is like having a thousand orgasms at once. And he shared that to let people know not to be afraid of death. And Yogananda was someone who could stop his heart at will. He he could turn on the death experience just by consciously doing it. And so he was a, a very legitimate teacher. And my own experiences of working with people, you know, I do a lot of work with people in, on the other side. So uh, I've had many conversations with souls that have passed over. I can still connect to my, I talked to my grandmother. I, I've, I've talked to Osho. I talked to Rumi. I talked to all sorts of people that have passed over. So through my own practices and experiences, I've come to realize death is by no means an end, but it is a real transition where we come face to face with the depth of our bonds with the souls that we share life with. And I think it's very important for us to go through the grieving process and use it to remind us of the beauty of that person and the love that we've shared with them and how they've touched our lives and made our lives more meaningful. And I think if more people could see death from a more positive perspective and also to realize that a lot of people are in a lot of pain, you know, my brother committed suicide because he was in so much pain he couldn't take life anymore in fact yeah he left a suicide note and uh, you know it's etched into my mind he said i'm leaving because no matter how hard i try i cannot stop hurting the people i love the most i love you goodbye and so sometimes we have to acknowledge that death is a beautiful thing for people that have done their best in life, but can't escape the jaws of pain and sadness and frustration. And and so if we hold it as a celebration that each individual that dies gave God something unique that only they could give, then it's. I think it's a little more easy to tolerate. Without a doubt, I mean, I learned something every time I, I talk with you, Paul. And uh, I this this interview was, you know, supposed to be two or three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I can't remember. and got uh, rescheduled. And I got to think that there's a reason why it was rescheduled, because a week ago, uh, relatively speaking, he was as healthy as a horse. So hearing this input from you is 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 definitely uh, synchronicity, if you will. Well, that's how love works. 
So I, I give you my love and blessings. And if you need my help along the way for any reason, just re- text me and I'll, I'll make some space for you for sure. Appreciate you know, uh, Andrew, you're a level four check practitioner. You've done what HLC? Have you done HLC three? All of them. Yes, sir. Yeah. Wait, waiting for HLC four too, by the way. Well, you, you just, you're having it right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm just curious, what has your Czech Institute education offered you and what challenges have you been faced with being a Czech professional? Um, you know, I, because there's a lot of Czech professionals that have a really hard time. You know, they go back to gyms where they want, where the uh, management's telling them they got to sell all these junk vitamins and supplements or they'll lose their job and people ridicule them for measuring people and doing what they call silly exercises with blood pressure cuffs and this kind of stuff. So- how have you used your Czech education to help others? And what are the kinds of challenges you work with and get results with where other approaches have failed? I know that's a big question, but uh, essentially, what has your Czech education offered you? What challenges have you faced being a Czech professional? And how have you used your education to help others? Well, I mean, the the reason I got into the whole Czech paradigm anyways is after a bike accident when I'd found triathlon and like that was going to be my sport of choice and my athletic uh, endeavor. The doctors told me I would never run again because my back was so jacked up. And it was through the Czech training and uh, all the Czech tools that I've, I'd learned that I was able to rehab myself. And then after doing that, you know, you want to help others as, as well. So spinal pathology became a bit of a passion. And, and uh, y- y- you look at the case as, as a whole, and I tell people all the time, you know, you have a knee issue. It's not a knee issue. It's a body issue, right? Yes. It's, 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 it's not, unless you fell down and hit your knee, that knee is not the problem. It's coming from somewhere else. And that's also, unfortunately, the, uh, one of the challenges I face is because when somebody wants to work with me in in general, I'm going to give them a whole bunch of paperwork and filling out that paperwork is quite intimidating to a lot of people because they just don't want to get real. And then they, <laughs> they don't maybe, they, they might not understand the, how, how, what they ate on Thursday is going to affect how they feel, you know, on Saturday. Yes. Uh, but, but it's true. So I guess what I've gotten from the Czech Institute is the ability to look at the, the, the whole person and the whole picture and everything they're doing mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and otherwise and yet that's also been what's been the challenge because some people are not ready for that. And the gym environment is definitely not ready for that. What I was doing before I went out on my own, I was doing an assessment in the spin room when spin classes weren't happening. So I would take a client in there and, and, and do some one-on-one work there and, and nobody could really see what we were doing. And we get interrupted every now and again, but at least uh, it wasn't in the middle of the, the, the leg press machine or something. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I started renting space from a massage therapist uh, that was pretty much next door to the gym I was working in. And I realized I'm paying rent at the gym, rent at the massage therapist. That's a, that's a mortgage. Yes. So I, I could use that and just find my own place. And what really did it, uh, I was out with Chris Mon and Janet Alexander taking a class that they taught about endurance training. Uh, and since I know endurance training, my wife will tell you that I was just going out there for a vacation. She may or may not be right. Either way. 
it was great because it was a turning point in my life in that I saw that all I needed was about a thousand. They're in the original Czech Institute, right? The, the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yes. Uh, no, the original Czech Institute was on Pearl Street. Okay. In La Jolla. That's gotcha. the, the, the 609 South Vulcan is my second institute. Okay. So, and I don't, you know more than I do how many square feet it was, but it was uh, 1,000. <laughs> yeah. So 1,000. Exactly. I'm like, if all I need is 1,000, I can find 1,000. I can afford 1,000, especially paying these two rents. And that's what I did. And I went out on my own. And it, I, it's, a, it's a problem for a lot of people that you're doing stuff different uh, and no pain, no gain. They've got that mentality. But it also attracts a certain type of clientele, a certain type of clientele that's ready for that, that's tired of the bullshit, uh, kick your ass exercise, uh, you know, drain, don't train, take this particular supplement, that particular supplement, et cetera. And, and honestly, these days, just staying off your damn cell phone and paying attention to your clients probably going to, you know, set you apart. Um, so the, the education and, and the be, being able to look at the person at, and the whole person is, is what the check institute gave me. And, and that's what took my business to the absolute next level. I mean, from making 17 bucks an hour at the YMCA to, what I'm charging now, um, which uh, you helped me with even, I think I told you about that. Uh, you helped me figure out what hourly rate I needed to uh, be charging sooner or later because through some business modeling, you and I did one-on-one. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're there. And how does it feel? It feels great, man. I mean, so <laughs> you're growing up, you know, and you're thinking, I mean, even as a professional cyclist, I mean, the, 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 the the yearly income compared to the output, at least, is it, it, only at the very top are you making really good good money. Uh, and I didn't think I'd love anything other than cycling until I found health. And being able to help people get healthy seems a lot less selfish uh, than than being a professional cyclist. It's also I don't have to go, you know, race my bike in the cold pouring down rain or whatever and re- risk, you know, dying, uh, screaming down a mountain at 70 miles an hour. Uh, but being able to help others and get paid to do that. And then the people that I'm attracting into my client tell that they're the one thing that they have in common is they're all good people. Um, you know, they're, they're old, they're young, they're athletes, they're not athletes, uh, male, female, gay, straight, black, white, doesn't matter. Good folks. So I basically get to spend my days hanging out with my friends, making them better and, and growing myself because, they it's a two-way street they're helping me whether they realize it or not absolutely there's always you know i tell people in my classes all the time you know never never misunderstand the fact that whenever you're working with a client they're bringing gifts to you and often as many or as big a gift as you're bringing to them so always keep the flow of love open don't get caught in the fact that you're just their dictator because you happen to know a little bit more about this or that and uh, it's amazing that the, you know, I look around my office right here and I'm surrounded by amazing gifts from clients that, you know, have just expressed so much love and appreciation for my support that every day I come to work and I get just the reminders of how powerful love is. And it has always made the pains and the challenges of my own journey much more um, palatable. If I didn't have that love in the relationships with the people that I've supported and their support of me, then I really wouldn't probably be any different than a mechanic or somebody that fixes other things or 
Yeah. You know, a psychologist just doing the same shit over and over again. But it is, uh, you know, the caregiver archetype is a real tough archetype, you know, because it's so easy to lose yourself because you identify yourself by what you can do for others. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. When you realize that if you open yourself to the relationship and that there's a reciprocity, then it's not just doing for others, it's receiving from others. And I think for a lot of healthcare professionals, if they just shifted their mind from it's my job to fix and direct to it's my job to have a relationship and share with those people what I know to be true from my own life experience, which for a lot of, for most healthcare professionals, they can't do because they're just as sick as their clients. But Czech professionals are quite healthy people. Oh, by the way, a bobcat's here. Hallelujah. Special day, buddy. That's cool. You have a bobcat visitor. So you need to look nice. up the uh, symbol symbolism of the bobcat. Will do. I've only seen three of them in the last year or so and they have all shown up when i was doing podcasts she was right on the uh right where the water charger is see her it's a female that's amazing andrew and and after we just got done talking about your stepfather passing away too bobcats really are masters of hiding and disguise so huh. if you if you see one right out in the open like that it's 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 special and for me as a medicine man spirit guide it's a spiritual message and they're uh masters of dealing with challenges by the way okay but uh very very special moment right here thank you for sharing this with me buddy <laughs> without a doubt no doubt yeah um you know i'd love it if you can give us an overview of what you offer in each of your books and we touched a bit on your DVD, but, you know, I got to review those books. They're beautifully written. They're very sound in their material and great resources for people. So can you give us a little encapsulation of each of the books? Yeah. So the, the first one was uh, Holistic Strength Training for Triathlon. And I don't let the title fool you. It's really a primer on how to lift and how to lift in respect to the Czech paradigm, which is, you know, the flexibility and stability before strength, before power. And then it has a whole section at the end talking about proper nutrition and lifestyle, which is really the foundation on which uh, flexibility, stability, strength, and power is built, right? Yes. Uh, and so it's, it, it's it, without a doubt, it was not possible without the Czech training, the Czech education, the Czech background. And in fact, I think you wrote the, the blurb on the back of that particular book. Oh, good. Um, and yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and by the way, I started writing that when I was first diagnosed, I was tied to an IV pole and I was like, well, I can't do anything physical. So I'm gonna start doing some, you know, uh, some stuff academically. Uh, and it's, it's anytime you've got one challenge, you know, one door closes that another door opens, that's cheesy, but it's true. And so I was, that's when I started writing that book. That's amazing. Um, and then the nutrition book, is and you wrote the Ford for that one, and I will tell you, everybody who's listening right now, the Ford is better than the book. Read the Ford. <laughs> you you could stop at the Ford, but the Ford's freaking amazing. When you when you when you showed me that before we went to public, you know, publish it, uh, I was I was blown away, Paul, and I was so psyched. But uh, it it's uh it's what I've learned at the Czech Institute, and then just kind of taken um, to to a deeper level with some of my studies under other mentors. I mean, you told me that you went and you studied with the best of the best and that's how 
you've developed your your philosophies, etc. And so I just started trying to do the same and exploring the other uh, amazing minds out there of which, you know, not many compared to you, but there are some that that are out there, you know, if you look for them, if you know where to look. And uh, I think I, I did a good job uh, with the nutrition book. And I, I'm, I'm proud of both of them. And I think they're worthy sources, especially for anybody who's listening to this podcast right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they're beautiful books. And I was very impressed when I reviewed them. And I thought, wow, I couldn't have wrote a better book than either of these myself. It was almost like uh, you had jumped inside me and said, let me uh, see if I can follow the line of, uh, you know, giving something to the world that's meaningful and not full of silliness. And and I was just deeply grateful and proud of you, man. Well, I appreciate that. And I, th I think I say somewhere, if not in the first acknowledgement of the book, uh, the second one, that, that you've been my co-author for, for both of these. And, and that's just the truth because you were there every step of the way. Um, and, and just so you know, I mean, the reason I started writing the second book and, and I got so deep into nutrition is because at the age of 40, after four years of a layoff from any kind of competitive sports whatsoever, I was like, I'm going to come back to triathlon. Uh, I, I started my, my business. I raised, started raising a son. You know, everything was back to where I thought I could give some time to athletic endeavors again, be selfish enough to start doing that. And I said, okay, well, if you're 40 years old and you haven't competed in four years and you still have leukemia, you better be spot on with your nutrition. Uh, and so that is literally what, what allowed me to uh, race and compete at that level and then win the Ironman in 2012 was because of my nutritional protocol, which was pretty much perfect. I didn't follow the 80-20 rule then, Paul. I followed 100% zero at that point. Yeah. Well, when I read your book on nutrition, I'm like, wow, I'm picking up all sorts of stuff out of this book. I didn't even know. I was like yeah. really impressed. And, you know, it was obvious that you'd uh, work with other mentors and found other resources that I hadn't come across because I thought the information in there was, I mean, even for me, it was excellent reading, you know, very, very good book. Well, I appreciate that, Paul. Coming from you, that means everything, dude. Well, I, I tell it, as my father says, I calls them as I sees them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in your work with clients, what have you found to be the most common limiting, limiting beliefs and challenges you have to help people transform into new dream affirmative beliefs and behaviors? Well, everybody wants a quick fix, Paul, you know, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 but it's, it's not nutrition, you know, in day style, it's nutrition and lifestyle. So it's, it's, it's going to take a while. And, you know, also everybody's looking for what, what to take, what's the next supplement I need to take. And, and I think you might've taught me this, you like somebody comes to me, I usually take them off all supplements. Yeah, uh, I tell them, don't ask your doctor what you should take. Ask your doctor what you should take away. Exactly. Take away. And, that, and I do that all the time. And, and I think those are the those are the concepts that are hard for people to to accept until they finally try it. And then when they try it, they're sold. Yes. So, you know, the world of supplementation and standard medical approaches, as well as diets of all kinds, kinds seems to be quite a trap for a lot of people. What have you observed? In regard to, um, you know, well, you kind of hit on that, but I'm curious, what is your philosophy personally, your living philosophy with regard to using supplementations or implementing things like biohacking and other modern approaches? And how do you uh, incorporate a, a sort of a second question is how do you incorporate a multidisciplinary approach? Because 
you know, uh, I'll give you an example. Like I'm not a, a supplement monger, you know. Yeah, I take a, a an organic whole food multivitamin for men 55 plus. I might take some chlorophyll or, you know, the stuff I, I use Wade Lightheart's enzymes. And for those of you listening, if you haven't listened to my podcast with Wade Lightheart, it's awesome. A lot of great information in there. So I use enzymes. I use a few just kind of natural support stuff, but not crazy stuff. But an example is, you know, I used to have this spot that developed on the left side of my nose, which I knew was from vaporizing tobacco and herbs because, you know, I use a, a volcano and it has a bag on it and yeah. and and the and the oils basically turn the bag like a dark brown, which is and if you open the bag, it's coated with oil. And it's exactly the color my spot was. And so what I would do is I would cut the vaporizing way back or sometimes nothing. And then I would increase my saunas to a good two saunas a day and I could watch it disappearing. So I thought, okay, I'm okay. It's not cancer or anything like that. It's just my detox pathways can't keep up. Keep up. And at, at, at periods in my life where I was under just so much work stress and trying to manage so much and so much engagements, travel people, I found that the the uh, vaporizing the herbs helped me sort of have a sense of joy at work where I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was under so much pressure. I could take a, a little break and go look out the window and hope to see a bobcat or a coyote or a deer and have a bag and, and just, so for me, once I knew that it wasn't cancer or anything, I said, okay, I just got to cut it back. But Angie being a nutritionist said to me, you know, you might need glutathione because it's the most powerful antioxidant there is, and it could really help your detoxification. And so within two weeks of taking glutathione, I literally every day watched that spot disappearing from about the size of a dime to nothing. Wow. And I noticed that, it, that I had a lot more, um, lot, not a lot less sense of being kind of backed up when, if you vaporize very much and you don't use regular saunas, you get a sort of sense that you're, backed up inside. So point being is I, I, I've i learned in many, many of my own experiences that there is a time and a place for various supplementation. There is um, a time and a place for medical drugs and pretty much everything. And And even though I'm kind of like not into the biohacking thing, I think for a lot of people that just have no willingness to connect to their body, at least it's a door open. So what's your sort of living philosophy in these regards? It goes back to the basics, you know, it, it, and that's where I want people to start. It's, it's everything I learned at the Czech Institute about thinking, breathing, drinking, eating, movement, and sleep, get those and nine times out of 10, you're good. Okay. And then there's, there's times, like you said, with the spot that, that you need a little something extra. That's when we start to explore, uh, the use of supplements and other methodologies to help heal the body, etc. Um, but also we're dynamic organisms. So something that was working for us or something that we needed uh last year we don't need this year something that we need right now we won't need in in a week who knows but um and you teach this in a lot of your your programs about listening to your body and let it be the guide it's just most of us aren't doing that and i also think unfortunately most of us a lot of us i won't say most of us but a lot of us aren't healthy enough to trust what we're getting and receiving from our body in terms of signals of how to change. Yes, indeed. That's a real, I think issue. the healthier you are, the, the more you can trust, you know, the, those, those, uh, signals that your body's giving you, but otherwise, um, 
yeah, sometimes you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you've listened to my two uh, podcasts I did for a reimagine event for the Black uh, Friday sale. But I go through in part one, the structure stages of consciousness and what part of our bodies each level of consciousness is related to and the functions in our bodies. And in part two, I give a, a whole comprehensive uh, menu of things you can do to better access archaic consciousness, to better access magic, to better access mythical, to effectively use the mental and to become an integral human being. So, you know, for the listeners, you might find that, but you might, if you haven't listened to that, find it interesting as well, Andrew. Okay, we'll do. Check that out. What are the biggest challenges you feel humanity faces today? And what suggestions would you offer the general public as to how to contribute to healing, integration, and wholeness so that the children of the world have a better chance of living without unnecessary pain or confusion? That That's huge, that question. And I, I think we've, I think we've touched on it a little bit. I think it's you know, we got a lack of connection, you know, with everything from, from our food to, to religion, to politics, to, to ourselves, even, um, nobody's connecting and we're so, uh, polarized one way or the other. And when that happens, you know, if you're at one pole or the other, you're going to freeze your ass off because you, you, the truth is, is not there to warm you. Let's put it that way. Um, so <laughs> that's true. <laughs> It's it's true, and, and thing is, like, all this is a medication of sort, you know, like the, the 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 diets, the the religions, the 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 relationships. They're they're medicines of some sort, but again, like we've touched upon, these medicines can be used or abused. And I think if we could understand and realize what we've talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, with the connections that you realize are true via the help of plant medicines, but Ultimately, you really don't need that. You, the, the truth is truth. And sooner or later, I guess it's like, was it Confucius that said the only thing that can uh, or soon be set free? What is it? Something like the sun, the moon, and the truth or something like that? You know this better than I do, Paul. I don't remember, uh, I don't remember that particular one. Some, some quote like that. But anyways, uh, I think we need to connect more uh, on every level. And, and that could start with you sit down to dinner tonight after listening to this podcast and you connect with your food and you sit there and you think about how that food has come to your table and maybe uh, put a blessing upon it about the, the, the sacrifice that's been made to bring that food to your table. And then now you're going to accept it into your body and you're going to do something and make something of the sacrifice and, and let that food become part of you so that you can then go ahead and do the, the work of the universe and, and making it a better place, which is always trying to move towards perfection. We just keep freaking tripping it up and holding it back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really a matter of, of worship and, and, you know, I start my day every day with giving thanks to the, to the North, the South, the East, the West, the above, the below, which is a native American practice. I, I give thanks to all the spirit guides and the beings of other dimensions that inform me and support me in supporting others. I give thanks to all the living beings of the earth that support us. I give thanks to all the people that love and support me and to my plants and my trees and give thanks for the beautiful family I have and for the heaven house and the property I get to enjoy every day and my home and vista. 
I give thanks to all the instructors, staff, students, and podcast followers and ask them to all join me in body, mind, and spirit and helping make the world a better place for all living beings each day. I spend about 45 minutes every morning just saying thank you and, and giving gratitude and realizing that my life would have no meaning without everybody else in it and that it's the beings of nature that have sacrificed so much for us and taken so much abuse so we could have more video games and shopping malls where we sell a lot of garbage that we don't need. In other words, you know, mother nature, she really bends backwards over for us, but uh, it's time where we have to wake up together and realize that our childish ways uh, can't go on much longer. We're, we're crippling mother nature and it's going to come at great cost to us if we don't wake up together. And so I agree with you. It's uh it's, I think really it's a lot of it is just celebrating what you have. And when you fill yourself with gratitude, you don't have to keep buying stuff to make yourself happy. You don't have to take drugs to make yourself happy. You, you know, you, you find joy in relationship. You find joy in the meals you eat, the water you drink, the friends that you have, you know, you can even grow to the point where you can have healthy adversity in your life and conflict and realize that, if you can stay connected at the heart, then you can really learn from other people's opinions instead of just flat out denying them or rejecting them, but being brave enough to view the world through their eyes so you can understand what it looks like to be inside of that perspective. And sometimes I've found, you know, Penny can tell you, and so can Angie. I study a lot of irritating stuff like fundamental religious ideologies and courses that are designed for Christians and Muslims and you know, people that are really trapped in belief systems and they, and Penny's office says, why do you keep listening or watching that stuff? And I'm like, I have to study what ails people. So I really can learn to understand them and help them. And, and I think if we all just celebrate the magic and the mystery that we've gotten so busy trying to make money and buy shit that we overlook every day, you know, it's like how many people get to see a bobcat right out their window yeah yeah and or even know what a bobcat is or how magical of an experience that is but also realizing that there's almost no place for them to live anymore you know so just to, right, right. i think if we realized how many animals and species and insects we were killing just so we could buy more shit we might turn our churches into meeting places to share love and and our own spiritual experiences and our own challenges, instead of having books read to us about what God expects of us and how we're going to burn in hell if we don't behave in a certain way and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, touch base with you on that. My final question, well, second to final question is if you, if you knew you were going to leave tomorrow, like your stepfather might be being leaving what would you like to say to everyone as as an inspirational message? I mean, it's it's probably my tagline, Paul, which is uh, the only limitations we have are the ones we set for ourselves. You know, um, I like I, I I know for a fact that there's no such thing as a self made man. I mean, I've I've had plenty of help along the way. I've had you, you know, uh, my wife without a doubt, uh, family, friends, uh, but. There are plenty of self-defeated men and women, you know. Yes. Uh, it's sad. Yeah. Uh, but 
and, and, and I tell my clients all the time, especially at first, when they're first starting to work with me, I believe in them a lot more than they believe themselves. And, you, you know, oh, you're just saying that. So I'm not just saying that. I've experienced it. I know exactly what it's like. Watch what's going to happen when you finally start believing in yourself as much as I start believing in you. Exactly. You know, uh, you remember who J.P. Sears is, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that J.P. Sears often credits me for is being the one of the first teacher he ever had that believed in him. And he right. often tells and he shared with me in a podcast I did with him when I was in Austin, Texas last that my believing in him inspired him to grow into his potential. And, you know, when you really realize what God is, then you can believe in the entirety of creation. You can believe that the problems are there to inspire creativity, not giving up. And oftentimes our self-defeat is because we're too insecure to reach out for the help of wise people that have already solved those kinds of challenges or you know, someone who's dying of leukemia could get a hold of a guy like you and get enough inspiration to really potentially completely heal simply because they now know it's possible. I mean, remember when Jim Fix, I think it was, ran the broke the four minute mile. Scientists had said over and over again it was impossible for a human being to run a four minute pass faster than a four minute mile, but within one year of him doing it, I think 13 other men did it. And by the second year, 57 people had broken the four minute mile. Why? Because they were inspired by one human being to know it was possible. Right. Well, it's been an absolutely lovely conversation. It's, you know, selfishly, I got to hang out with my buddy for a couple of hours and just share some love. So I have my selfish interests in the podcast, but also I just wanted to share you with as many people as I could, because you've certainly been a hell of an inspiration to me, man. I remember when you were going through your challenge with leukemia, I was like sending you love every day because I'm like, wow, this guy is facing a hell of a dragon with teeth and he needs the love, all the love he can get. And he may not know I'm sending it to him, but I, my, my love and all of our love has wings that fly faster than the speed of light. So, um, to close out, where can people find out more about you, your coaching service? Because you coach people all over the world, don't you, through Skype or FaceTime? Yeah, I do a lot of nutrition uh, and lifestyle coaching as far as that's concerned. And uh, also some some coaching as far as cycling and triathlon is concerned as well. But my, my passion is just in health, not so much in sport. And uh, we, we can do both depending on what a goal is. But my website's triumphtraining.com. And, you know, I have... I'm 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 not very uh as you well know as Penny will tell you as well I'm not very technologically inclined I just started texting like last year <laughs> good <laughs> uh, yeah uh but I, I am on uh Facebook and I'll, I'll do the usually once a day kind of post about health of something uh something that I think is interesting and will help people out there but uh, if if people are ever in the Atlanta area and can actually come to my studio I'd love to share it with them it's three thousand square feet of just absolute beauty it's uh inspired by by what I found and learned at the Czech Institute. So I think uh, if, if they are looking for something that's not San Diego, but pretty close second, uh, it's not a bad place to go. Not bad at all. And your books and your DVD are on Amazon. Let's have you just share the names of the books and the DVD one more time. Yeah, the books are Spot on Nutrition and Holistic Strength Training for Triathlon. 
And the DVD is called Living is Winning. I don't even know if it's actually still out there for sale or whatever. I had nothing to do with it other than I was the it is. let them fil- film me for two years or three years or whatever it was. But uh, if you want to see what bad hairstyle looked like in the you know early 90s, uh, you can get a kick out of that. No, it's there. I, 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 I researched it this morning. It's still available okay. on Amazon. It's got five stars, too. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, I mean, it won Atlanta uh, Best Film Festival in Atlanta and uh, and a few other film festivals, I guess. Yeah, no, I found it a powerful, moving documentary. So highly recommend it, especially if you have a family member or you yourself are suffering from what could be a seemingly terminal disease. Uh, I'm sure Andrew will breathe some spirit right into you, right through your television screen. Andrew, I love you, buddy. I'm proud of you, man. I, I, you know, if if you were the only friend I'd accumulated in my lifetime, I'd be quite gratified. So keep doing what you're doing and sharing your love and helping me grow just by being you. Well, I appreciate that, Paul. You you mean more to me and a whole bunch of other folks than you realize. And uh, it's it's we're glad to have you in this world, man. It, it wouldn't be the same without you. Oh, great spirit! If you loved our podcast today, share it with all your friends and. Let's spread the love and make the world a a little better place every day so that the children have a better chance of really enjoying the playground and not having to have unnecessary pain. And let's make some room for some real food and some real farming and clean the water up and do our part to only put money into the corporations that are living and practicing sustainable practices. And I think we got a chance at turning things around and getting the Garden of Eden back in shape again. So, aho, great spirit. Andrew, I look forward to our next opportunity to share some love. So thanks for being with me today, bud. Me too, brother. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Andrew Johnston. You can visit Andrew's website at triumphtraining.com or follow him on Facebook at andrew.johnston.754. If you are interested in working with Andrew, you can email him directly, andrew at triumphtraining.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new website at chakiva.com. 